Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, I've been a lover of, of Indian music, South Asian music, uh, since I was a budding little uh, hippie freak in high school. And of course, like uh, any self-respecting hippie freak, I would listen to Ravi Shankar and you know, get into the sort of uh, the mystical ambiance of uh, Indian drones. I went to see Ravi Shankar during high school when I was a kid, and it was probably the first time I was I had a truly ecstatic experience uh, listening to music. Uh, you know, sort of in my in my inner self, uh, rather than just because I was dancing and and having a, a goofy time. Um, and that really opened a door, and I kept being interested in uh, in, in Indian music. I got interested in Bollywood uh, stuff back in the uh, early '90s when it was not uh, available on on every you know in, uh, in every record shop in some fancy hipster collection. Uh, I I was listening, watched uh, the Brooklyn public access shows, and they on the the local cable station they would show all the old filmy geats and so i got into rd Burman and all these characters and wrote about that stuff and one of the wonderful things about indian music both popular and and classical is uh is just that it's a lifelong process of even beginning to grok it i've been reading and listening to it for decades now and i'm i'm really barely Maybe I'm maybe I'm out of kindergarten. Maybe I'm in first grade. <laughs> but uh, but it's but there's something wonderful about that. A lot of other things in my in my life, I feel like I've gotten to a point where I kind of get what's going on, and maybe it's a mop up operation to appreciate the variations. Uh, but indie music is an infinite universe, and uh, also brings together art, you know, aesthetics and. Uh, what I can only call spirituality, and that it, for me, it's it's one of the most spiritual of musics, even though it can also be um, entertaining and bizarre and uh, exuberant. Um, and so you can imagine my glee when uh, I went to see Richard Bishop, who we had uh, on the show a couple of mo months ago. Uh, we were talking about esoteric books on the show, but of course, I, I first met Richard in his context as being a musician in the Sun City Girls, and then as a solo performer uh, under the name Sir Richard Bishop. So I went to see Richard and ran into a another Sublime Frequencies crony, uh, and Robert Millis, and uh, who uh, performed wonderfully, did a great set. He's, he's a guitarist and and composer in his own right, but um, he was selling at the merch table in addition to uh, Sublime Frequencies discs. He, he's put together a lot of these compilations and some of their videos were shot by him on, on his travels, listening to music, and he's done a lot of the covers for Sublime Frequencies. So if you're into the Sublime Frequencies vibe, uh, you, you have Robert partly to thank for it. But uh, there was a book that I just hadn't come across called Indian Talking Machine. Um, which was put together by Rob when he got a, uh, a Fulbright to go to India to study uh, 78s and the whole culture of collecting and listening that surrounds um, 
78 everywhere, but he was particularly interested in, in Indian music. And I'm a, I love uh, 78s. I don't collect them myself, but I do collect uh, recording CDs and other uh, forms of 78 recordings just because there's something uh, so enchanting and uh, marvelous and uh, uncanny and spectral uh, about 78 sounds. And so it's a, what a wonderful project. And indeed, the book, uh, Indian Talking Machine, is a wonderful book, which I'm, I'm sad to say is, is I, I think, basically out of print now. Sublime Frequencies has a style of like they make a certain amount of whatever they're putting out and they put it out there and it goes fast or it goes slow. And then that's it, guys, you know, move on to the next project. Uh, but luckily, uh, Rob's done a lot of stuff and a lot of other things are available online that have spun off from uh, his Indian uh, uh, extravagant experiences. And so, uh, we're, we're, you know, you're not you're not out of luck um, to taste some of the music that he's collected and uh, some of the images and ideas he has about Indian music so uh with no further ado rob thanks for uh for joining us on expanding mind thanks for having me and thanks for the uh swell introduction i understand yeah. exactly what you mean about indian music there's a quote uh uh i read somewhere i can't exactly put my finger on it but it was like um someone that goes to india for two weeks thinks that they can write uh and uh, a book someone that goes to india then for a month thinks that they can only write an article and someone that goes there for a year has no clue uh what to say because it's that kind of country it's like it's it's so it just goes deeper and deeper the more you uh scratch at it yeah i always thought it was uh, a really i really admired the the whole style of the sort of sublime frequencies musical uh explorations because you go with a, a certain kind of goal that can organize the chaos of being in a foreign country in a place where there's so much going on, there's so many opportunities, exactly. there's so much confusion. It gives you like a certain focus, but it's this kind of focus that's just going to draw you deeper into the mystery. Um, and well, it was, it, it, I'm really thankful for to Alan Bishop and uh, actually the early days of Sublime Frequencies, it was started by Alan Bishop, Richard Bishop, and Sean Mayette. Uh, Rick is no longer really part of the label. But even before I knew those guys, I would be traveling and I'd always record. I always had my little DAT recorder, I guess, back in the 90s and cassette before that. And music and looking for interesting musical performances or recordings was always kind of a way to focus uh, a trip that I was on. And then it was just amazing. Obviously, Sun City Girls have always done that. And uh, it was great that they started that record label because it really helped um, provide an outlet for uh, a lot of us weirdos who were traveling that way. Oh, yeah, I think it's been it's definitely been one of the more interesting labels, I think, in the last, you know, 10, 15 years at all, just in terms of creating a new space, really a new uh, uh, it, what I like about Sublime Frequencies is that it gives permission. It gives permission both to other amateurs to go out and make the recordings you want to on the road and, you know, gather weird cassettes and, you know, go ahead, do it. You don't need a degree. You don't need a, an official backing. You don't need to be a professional ethnomusicologist. And it also gives permission to listeners 
for a certain kind of raw listening that in a kind of politically correct era, and for good reasons to, to, for in many ways, that I think there's a kind of constipation around listening to other people's music because it's of like, course. well, oh, I don't know anything about it, so I, I have to be very cautious and not, and not be... Uh, you know, not fall into exoticism or fall into desire too much because it's too unruly. But then what yeah. you get is uh, anodyne music. You know, you get people who are like, well, it's safe to listen to exported world music, slick stuff, because then I know that I'm part of the audience. But if I listen to something that I don't understand at all, well, I, I don't really have the right to do that because... I, I, you know, I'm just a colonialist or I'm just an ignorant person or whatever, you know what I mean? And it's a very exactly. common thing in world music and it, it's sublime frequencies created a different, a different space for it. Exactly. And, um, yeah, I mean, don't get me started. Uh, that, the, the, that's just the whole way we've listened to world music and music from other cultures is sort of part of the problem in culture these days, but that's a separate diatribe. Um, but for sure, uh, there's no reason why you can, why say where I live in Seattle, I can go out and casually see a bunch of bands, like stuff, not like stuff, um, form my own opinions about it. You know, someone might say, well, that's a terrible example of Northwest grunge rock. Why aren't you listening to that? Uh, well, it appeals to me. And the same thing can happen when you travel in, in, in other countries. You collect music, you listen to it. You bring, Sublime really allowed people to bring their own personal uh feelings, preconceptions into the music and enjoy it for what it was rather than for what it was supposed to be or supposed to mean to them. And uh, that was great, liberating for a lot of people, I think, a lot of listeners and people who went out to make recordings and collected stuff. So, so t talk about getting this Fulbright. I mean, here you are, you're, you're, you know, you're an outside uh, freelance musician, weirdo, collector guy, you know, and and, you know, it's a zone I have uh, always had great admiration for and spent a lot of time there my, myself. And it's not something I associate with, like, scoring a Fulbright or even thinking that you could score a Fulbright. Because, I, I mean, I think of the Fulbright as this, like, really high-end, fancy-pants, uh, you know, sort of award that you can get or a research project you can get that you need to be in an Ivy League or some kind of thing like that. So... I, how did how how did you even have the idea that that might uh, that they might give you some cash? Tell me about it, and 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 to all the kids listening out there, it just goes to show you that any idiot can uh, get whatever he wants if you just put your mind to it. Um, well, I've kind of dabbled around uh, the sound art field for many years. Um, I played in an experimental music band for many years. I mean, I still do, called Climax Golden Twins. Uh, you know, that was initially uh, sort of very improvisational and very um, oriented towards field recording as well, actually, and oriented towards listening to unusual sounds, trying to do things with instruments that were a little different. Um, and that led naturally to meeting a lot of artists here in Seattle and occasionally working with them, doing sound for an installation, uh, some kind of... Uh, field recording collage for another uh, for a painter's show that he made these paintings in Italy, and that artist, his name is Donald Fells, uh, had actually gotten several Fulbrights, and I was always talking about seventy eights and my desire to travel and to learn more about it, and I'd actually gone to India in two thousand and eight, 
and managed to meet a collector or two. Uh, and because I liked 78s and I also was interested in Indian music, I really wanted to learn more about Indian music. And uh, I thought that 78s and Indian record collectors might be a better entree to it than, the, as you were saying, the typical sort of world music CDs or Wikipedia pages that you can otherwise find. Uh, and my friend, the artist here in Seattle, just encouraged me to apply for a Fulbright. He said India has a lot of openings, um, and it might just be a crazy enough idea that they'll fund some of your research. So I did, and there you go. It happened. Well, it's such a great uh, project, just the crossover of the two, the, the sort of two elements, the 78s and the in uh, Indian music, which in some ways is so constrained by the 78 form, by the three-minute form. Very much it's is. like you have this these people who are trained their whole lives to do long improvisations, and then they're sitting there with this weird machine and being like, come on, get it down to three minutes. And, and a lot of them do, and they do a great job at it, but it's so transformative from what the context of um, of the uh, of the traditional, more traditional context of, of the musical performances, uh, it's really kind of a, a remarkable sort of meeting point. And you know, I guess we could talk about it from either end, but maybe talk a little bit about what what 78s have meant for you, why you were already interested in them, what, what's particular about the 78 and the collecting of them that inspires you uh, to think to to explore it in an Indian context. Well, let's see. It goes way back. Um, I mean, it goes way back for me, even uh, to when I was a, a wee baron. Um, uh, listening to, oddly enough, I was listening to, I accidentally bought a record for my father for Christmas one year um, that uh, was Jelly Roll Morton. And I really had, you know, I was listening to rock and roll and the Beatles or whatever I was listening to. And uh, I wanted to get my dad a uh, a jazz record that I'd I'd done a play in high school or something, and then used contemporary versions of Jelly Roll Morton. Jelly Roll Morton was a famous, uh, basically he claims to have invented jazz. He was a twenties uh, New Orleans jazz piano player. It was amazing. And I went out and I bought a record for my dad, thinking that it was going to be these contemporary versions. And it actually turned out to be a compilation of the original songs from the twenties. And my dad didn't really give a crap. Uh, <laughs> as fathers often do with Christmas presents, you know, you never know what to get them. And then, um, but I started listening to it and I just, there was something about it that it just got into my, into my subconscious. Um, there was especially a couple of tracks that had little vaudeville numbers at the beginning when they'd actually speak and the sort of the slangs and the dialect really appealed to me. The sound of the voices from, uh, almost a hundred years ago. Uh, really started appealing to me. Um, and then with 78s, they're very immediate. Uh, there's no, you know, basically you'd go in, you'd be in front of a horn or in front of a microphone once they invented microphones in the mid-20s, and you had your one shot. You could do a couple of takes, but there was no overdubbing. There was no studio sweetening afterwards. Um, and they ha maybe it's a fantasy in my part, but to me, a lot of music from that time has this immediate quality to it. 
that you really feel like there's very little between you and the performer, except for a lot of surface noise on the record. But um, there's an immediacy there that I that appealed to me greatly. And um, a little bit later in life, uh, a friend was in Korea, and I asked him to bring back some music from Korea. And he, again, an accident, he brought me a CD that was all uh, older Korean recordings on uh, uh, from '78. And it just sounded so amazing to me, the, uh, the, mis the mystery surrounding it with all these deep crackles and the music was practically uh, subsumed under these, this surface noise and it sounded so mysterious, so alien. Um, and of course I was kind of pretty into noise music at that point and experimental music. So it just sounded like an uh, experimental music. And then I started going out and looking for 78s and realized it was a very cheap way to find new music. You know, because at that time, they were only 25 cents, 50 cents. You could go to a thrift store and buy a stack of records. I started becoming very interested in the early players and Edison and how he invented uh, recording, um, how the different machines were made. Uh, you know, it's kind of an extension of instrument building. And I found that to be super fascinating. And uh, we started incorporating... 78 RPM sounds, uh, samples, surface noise stuff into the Climax Golden Twins experimental music that we were making. And eventually we started making a series of cassettes uh, that was just called Victrola Favorites that was just recorded straight off of uh, uh, an old gramophone. We just wind it up and play records and record them. And uh, that was actually, oddly enough, popular enough that the record label Dust to Digital contacted uh, us that that is myself and Jeffrey Taylor who were in Climax Golden Twins and uh, they wanted to do some kind of big project based on Victrola favorites so we did a book based on our record collection shows a lot of uh, the graphics from the early recording era which I love to the uh, 20s graphics sleeve designs label designs really beautiful uh, lettering hand lettering um, and uh, so that came out in about 2008, and uh, it was sort of the direct inspiration to make the Indian Talking Machine book. Um, and uh, I started to just be more interested in 78s. I started to, as I was reading about the history of it, there was this guy, Fred Gaysberg, who was there right at the beginning of the invention of records. Um, he was the assistant to Emil Berliner, who invented uh, the actual flat disc record as we know it today. And uh, this is in the late 1890s. And uh, he went off uh, to England initially and set up a company there, the Gramophone Company, which eventually became EMI. And uh, he started traveling the world recording, uh, essentially to make recordings so that they could sell gramophones um, to uh, different communities. And... Um, he something about his work resonated with me with sublime frequencies in that he was traveling around and recording and uh that led me to his first overseas expedition to asia which was to india and i realized those the first recordings made outside of a western context and so i became that's really what led me into the indian 78 world well, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating thing. Just that, well, one when you when you realize that they first started making records in order to sell the gramophones themselves, right. uh, but then the weird way that 
though, you know, overall, you, you can think about the long arc of recording and, and elect, you know, using electricity to uh, capture and reproduce music and then having recordings, et cetera, et cetera, as, as being kind of a, a overall a shrinking force and that diversity is ultimately woven into this kind of broadening market where there's certain kinds of, there's a kind of collapse of difference into this recorded space. Mm -hmm. Initially, uh, it's this incredible explosion because they want to sell gramophones to everybody. <laughs> they want to sell gramophones to the Poles and the Italians and the Jews and, and the, the Indians and, and the, the Indians. Spanish, whatever. Yeah. You know, and so there's this drive to go out and uh, record and collect. And that was really when I started listening to more 78s, again, not collecting them myself, but seeking out uh, collections and com compilations that others had done of 78s was uh, not just being into, you know, country blues and, and stuff like that, uh, or, or, or raw gospel music, which I'm, which I'm also a fan of. But when it, once it just dawned on me that the, the extent of the recordings across um, across the planet and with all of these different genres, then it's super amazing because even though, you know, you can, as you said, there's an immediacy to these, to these recordings that is coupled with a distance, a kind of, a kind of mystery. And the combination of the two is really delicious. And as you said, there's a kind of romantic sense that there's something more direct about these recordings, even though they're so much farther off in time. But it is true that even if you're kind of like, look, you know, these guys, they're performing. Some of them have careers. They're very aware that these things are calling cards. You know, they're part of their business as musicians and blah, blah. Even if you have kind of a disenchanted view, it's still the case that the people who are being recorded on, on, a, on a lot of these discs, that's it. They're the first generation to do that. They're the first generation to meet that whole recording apparatus of, of, of modernity and imagine, yeah, I mean, imagine hearing something special there. Imagine hearing your, you probably did when you were a kid and you first played with a cassette machine or something and you heard your own voice played back to you. I mean, imagine that on a societal, cultural level, you know? There'd been nothing like that for thousands of years of human history and then all of a sudden. And another thing that was interesting about that early time is that the recording engineers, people like Gaysburg, they had no idea what to record. Uh, and that was especially true in America, which gave rise to the great Paramount label and all of these great blues artists, as you mentioned, that were recorded. Um, they didn't know what to record. They were just trying to record something to appeal to black people to buy gramophones, um, to buy Victrolas. So they would record anyone. And that led to such an amazing breadth of music that might not have been recorded if people thought more thought about it in a different way. You know, they were just trying to get anything onto disc. So, um, and I think that also worked in India. They uh, they recorded a lot of people that might not have otherwise been recorded, a lot of oddball um, musicians, a lot of people that only recorded once, but thank God they did because it's very unique. So, so the Indian Talking Machine uh, has two CDs in it of things from your own collection presumably most mostly bought when you were in, in doing your india uh, mm -hmm. travels um i want to just just to get if you could give a a a tale of like a a favorite uh, recording or a, a circumstance where you found a recording that was particularly 
evocative or just a little flavor of like what it's like to be a 78 collector and to go out on hunting down in these dusty markets and finally find a, a stack. And as you see in the photographs in the book, I mean, a lot of them are just in the most degraded condition possible, covered with dust, piled up without any sleeves, you know, in the back corner next to a bunch of statues. I mean, it's, just, <laughs> it's, it's very much a, you know, a, you really have to be hunting for these things. And, and yet you turned up a lot of really terrific music. I mean, it's really, and I, I've, again, I've listened to other collections of you know, even Indian 78s and, and other world music 78s, and it's really quite a, quite a range. I mean, a very, very, uh, quite a varied uh, collection. So I, I was wondering if you could just, you know, grab a track or, or a story of finding it. Well, um, God, there's so many. And, uh, I mean, just uh, a brief aside, the range was a very conscious choice on my part. I mean, really, Indian Talking Machine is as much about me learning about Indian music, but also trying to kind of understand a little bit more about what collecting records are and is or whatever it is, uh, because it's a very peculiar impulse. Um, and so I wanted then the tracks to all be from my own collection. But I think that uh, one track for sure that jumps out at me is uh, this amazing singer um, called Babu uh, Agor Nath Chakrabuddy. And I'd gone to talk to a... Uh, uh, an, an archivist who actually was a professor at a university in Calcutta. And he um, mentioned, uh, we were talking, I was talking about the early, you know, the early, my interest in early discs and, um, and uh, he was talking about his archive and, and so on. And uh, I was kind of interviewing him and <clears throat> he mentioned this artist, Babu Agornath Chakrabadi as being um, extremely rare and as being someone that was recorded essentially in secret, which is nearly impossible in the early days of recording because the apparatus was big, there was a, it was acoustic, there was a big horn you had to sing directly into. But the mystery surrounding it from collectors for most, for all these years had been that he was, he was recorded against his will. And I said, well, I really want to hear this. This sounds quite, quite interesting. And he, and he said, you will never find this record. You'll never find that record. Uh, it's very rare. And I swear to God, I think I went out that evening because uh, there's record dealers hidden in weird little parts of Calcutta, and I found a copy of one of his records immediately. Turns out it wasn't the one that he was talking about. This guy actually only made two records, and it's the other one that's very rare. Um, though this one was equally actually quite as rare. Uh, and it was from 1903. It was recorded in 1903, probably released in 1904. And um, the reason that they think he was recorded in secret is that there's no accompaniment. Uh, so it's just a weird story that collectors built up over all these years that um, he'd record, he was recorded in secret because he didn't want to record. He was a very, very well-known musician, uh, extremely, um, extremely aesthetic. Uh, he eventually gave up uh, working in music and moved to Varanasi and sort of retreated from life in his later years. Um, but it's a very, uh, it's a very unusual and beautiful, beautiful record. And it's, it's on, uh, the second disc on Indian Talking Machine. Yeah, well, maybe, uh, we'll take a listen to, uh, to, to that one right now. So we're just going to hear 
uh, an excerpt from uh, Babu Achar Nath Chakrabedi. Let me let me do it for you, Babu Agar Nath Chakrabedi. Chakrabedi. That's yeah, amazing. For... Sounds like a trucker name or something. <laughs> <laughs> the common Bengali name, actually. Chakrabedi. Yeah, it's yeah. probably pronounced differently. It's different, written in different ways, but. Great. Well, we'll hear, we'll hear this, uh, just a, a short excerpt from that right now. That was a, a song from Bengal recorded probably 1903, 1904. You know, and when you listen to things that, you know, that were recorded that long ago, it also brings up this whole question, the sort of spectral side of recording, which I know you're interested in. And I know it's, it's also in some ways part of the sublime frequencies aesthetic is a certain evocation of the, the ghostly, the spectral, the dead. Uh, and I know you've done a project called Jewel of the Year, which involves some of the, the Indian recording material that you had and ideas that you had when you were out there, uh, that, that kind of turns on this notion of like the, the relate, the, the, the gram, the 78 becomes this strange kind of body that holds mm -hmm. an aspect of the spirit or the voice or the person you know, even as the, the actual person dies and their body decays, there's some kind of literal inscription. And that's part of the, I think, the, the magic of 78s, too, is that, you know, right in, in contemporary times, we think of recording, everything is just digital, everything gets translated into these numbers, which then become these abstract databases in all these different formats. And it's very disembodied. But when you're talking about, especially these early recordings before the uh, the electrical microphone you're really just talking about there's there's a hu there's a human body they're making noise they're 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 modulating the, the 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 pressure in the air and that pressure is inscribing itself essentially directly onto this piece of shellac uh and then when you play it back you're like kind of just picking up that those series of pressures so it's it is very intimate and close and yet Again, the more time that comes up across, the more spectral everything becomes. The more there's, there's a mysterious. Yeah. yeah. So what what was uh, Jewel of the Year about, and how are you playing with with those ideas in in terms of making this other project? Uh, well, Jewel of the Year was it, it's it's kind of exactly that. Um, it grew out of uh, while I was in India on my Fulbright, <clears throat> I met a Swiss sound artist uh, named Gilles Aubrey, who was there uh, researching Bollywood um, for a, a separate project. And we just kind of randomly met one night in uh, Mumbai and kind of kept in touch. And the project sort of developed from an idea of Gilles uh, a few years later. Basically, he'd made a lot of uh, recordings of cremations, which are a very common occurrence in India. Uh, 
essentially bodies are burned once once you die. And there was a kind of a surface connection, but a very interesting one between recordings that he'd made of cremations, um, the crackling fire sounds, and then the crackling 78 sounds. And so that kind of was the starting point for us um, as a sort of improvisational sound art uh, experiment. And um, from there, we've done a series of recordings. We actually went back to India and uh, did some shows in India and some more research there. Um, but it, it came to be about this sort of what what is recording and what does it mean and how does uh, what what happened to uh, what happens to the voice once it's recorded? What um, what does it mean to preserve something? Uh, there was a very strong fascination in Victorian England and in America, and some people have suggested that the development of recording kind of came from this, which is this desire to preserve life after death, and uh, and in fact the original. Uh, logo his master's voice um was a dog listening to a recording of his master and the original painting of this the dog is sitting on a coffin um so the idea being that his master is is gone but he can still hear these recordings and is it the same thing as the living master how does the dog react to it so that was kind of the basis of jewel of the year and uh like i said we've done some performances and some recordings we've done some radio shows uh, we actually just did a big piece um, for Documenta in Europe, and um, we're probably going to be doing uh, some records based on on this in in the near future. Sounds great. Um, I, and I, I did want to ask you a little bit about. I mean, since we're talking about you know issues of creation, destruction, death, the the spectral, uh, about the sort of for lack of a better term, spirituality of this music or the sense of what, where Indian music can take you, uh, even when you're not necessarily very well-versed in what's happening, you can't necessarily count the, the beats or recognize the raga or, you know, be able to appreciate the incredible control uh, that so many of these master musicians have over, you know, tiny little variations that are the kinds of things that it, the connoisseurs, you know, cream in their jeans over. But <laughs> even when you don't have that, uh, that sort of facility, there's still something really remarkable that happens, you know, even for people, even, you know, in a kind of pop way, you know, people sort of associate these sounds, you know, there's this kind of resonance, these, the, the vibration, the drone sound, uh, it conjures something, you know, for, for folks. What, what do you think it's, a, what's, what's going on here? What, what is it about this vast tradition of music that, that has this sort of special claim, at least in my experience, on sacred music? Well, that is a huge question. Uh, and it is really interesting. Um, and all of that other stuff you mentioned, ultimately, um, the, uh, you know, recognizing the raga or counting the the tals, the beats, um, is kind of superficial. It's just another way to get inside the music. Um, and uh, but I don't know. In a lot of ways, that's why I did a Fulbright. I wanted to go to India to try to understand this music more. Um, when the thing that interested that got me 
about Indian music or um, let's see the the recording that first that first blew me away was by the Dagar brothers. I'm not sure if you're familiar, probably are. Uh, the specifically um, the recordings of the Rudravina, which is a stringed instrument from the from North India, and it's got a very low uh, sound. Someone bought a CD of this at a record store I worked in in Seattle, and I asked them. I wasn't particularly interested in Indian music at this time. And they, uh, I said, why did you buy this? And they just looked at me in this very strange way and said, it goes very deep. And I thought, well, I could give it a try. And it was actually two CDs. Um, the first CD being just the Alap, which is the rhythmless uh, sort of exploration of the raga uh, that these musicians do. And it just went, he was exactly right. It just went someplace very quickly that was beyond words. And I'm not sure if it is um, got to do with the time-based aspect. I mean, if you devote yourself to an hour of uh, music like that, you will have uh, a pretty internal experience. Also, the instruments in India have been so developed over so many years to get at a spiritual space, um, to get inside. I'm talking hundreds of years. Um, that uh, it's very hard to not have that experience. When you when I think about the electric guitar, for example, the guitar is amazing and it's very versatile and it's used in all over the world. But the minute you use an Indian instrument in another context, you immediately know it's an Indian instrument. You know, the sitar has a specific sound. Uh, they all do. And I think that a lot of that, the 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 sympathetic strings that a lot of Indian instruments have, which are these strings that you don't play, but they vibrate uh, in sympathy, um, in harmony with um, the strings you actually are playing. All of that goes to goes towards creating this space which you can occupy with your part of your mind that is beyond words, I think. And uh, I'm still trying to understand it, and part of me actually doesn't ever want to understand it because... Once I came home from my Fulbright in India, and really almost to this day, Indian music, the classical music, is practically the only thing I really want to listen to. I still listen to other stuff, but there's something about it that just, it goes deep, as this person told me. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it can, it can uh, stir up uh, obsession. And clearly, the some of the characters you talked to uh, when you were doing your research, the 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 Indian seventy eight collectors were quite a <laughs> quite a set of characters. Yeah, uh, they were really amazing, uh, kind of amazing people. T talk about so, you know whatever. What are the the guys you made the, the guy you made the best connection with, or uh, the, the the situation that was seemed the most representative of uh, just how the, you know, whatever the peculiar particular characteristics of the 78 collector well god i don't know because i've talked to a lot of 78 collectors even here in america um and one of the things i love is just in uh, how people interact with their collections in different ways and how some people are very clean and organized and some people are very chaotic um how some people are so impassioned about certain particular types of music um and it's at those points where you learn uh, but, um, 
Oh, there's so many. There's V.A.K. Ranga Rao, who uh, is a collector in Chennai or Madras. Um, he had what he claimed to be the biggest collection in all of India. Uh, he was a huge character. Records stacked everywhere in his house. But he couldn't play any of them because all of the record players were broken or in the shop. Um, and I love that. It was just someone sitting there. He'd listen to them all at some point. So all the knowledge was in his head, and he had this way of retaining it. Uh, but he couldn't actually listen to one of his records. But he wasn't going to get rid of any of them. Um, there was other artists. Actually, speaking of Babu uh, Agornath Chakrabadi, another collector I met in uh, Calcutta, um, Ranti Deb Moitra, was he, he was great. He knew a lot about very specific types of Indian music, specifically um, Drupad. And the other Babu Agornath record, he had always wanted, and he knew of its existence, but um, there was one record dealer. Often record dealers in India are actually just little stalls on the street. They're not like a record store as we might know it here in uh, the United States. Anyway, this guy had a copy of this record, the only copy that, has ever, that, that this collector had ever seen, hanging on a string in his shop. And the collector described it as like he was fishing. He was fishing for the collector. And he was eventually going to reel him in with this piece of bait on the on the string um, and get him to pay the money for it. And this, this same collector would also talk about how he, he would go to the red light districts. And what he meant by that was that most of the early discs uh, of 78 recorded in India were recorded by women who were from the red light districts uh, because they were the only people that would record at that time. And uh, so he would talk about going to the red light district, which just for him meant he was gonna go listen to his uh, very early recordings of uh, female singers. So I don't know, there's too many characters. They're, they're, they're each one I realized, I was trying to look for some sort of through thread uh, that might describe the collector mentality. And I also read a lot about collecting and museums at this time. And realize that they're all pretty, everyone's got their own take on things. Everyone's different. And uh, I am happy to kind of leave it at that. Yeah, no, that, that, totally, uh, that totally makes sense. Um, what, what, uh, what, so what are you going to, you, you have this big archive, you've had a lot of experience, you've done a lot of research. Are you going to continue to sort of work with this music in, in either in installations or further uh, compilations and recordings. Yeah, like I said, I'm too uh, I'm too drawn into Indian music to to let it go. It's not just a little thing for me. Um, I, I'm going to be doing. Um, I hope very soon in the future, uh, if not a reissue of the book, um, probably I'll do some LPs uh, on Sublime Frequency uh, of more early recordings from India and more of my photographs, but it'll be an LP, kind of like a follow-up. I've also managed to connect to quite a lot of interesting artists and people in India, and I'm working on some projects with them. Another one specifically for Sublime Frequencies, uh, I'm working on, there's a, a field recordist who's, who actually is also an inspiration for Sublime Frequencies named Deben Bachacharya, who was from Calcutta, and um, he, if you look at almost any, not almost any, but many, many, many LPs of music from other countries, 
uh, especially those released in the 60s and 70s, had his recordings on them. And he lived in Paris for a lot of his life, uh, contributed to radio, contributed a lot of uh, his field recordings to various record labels for L, uh, for release. Um, he was an amateur, kind of in the same way that Sublime Frequencies uh, is. He was not a trained ethnographer, um, but he loved music, and he got a tape recorder very early in the in the early fifties and started experimenting with it. And he was living in Paris, and he took a trip overland from Paris. This is in the fifties, from Paris all the way back to India. He drove through Iraq. He drove through. He crossed from Iraq into Iran. This is in a you know a VW bus. And uh, he wrote a manuscript at that time about this trip, and it never got published. He also took many, many photographs and made many recordings along the way. A lot of the recordings have come out specifically on an LP called The Desert Road. Um, but so I'm working with his widow, who I met in India, to do a, um, finally to publish this manuscript with uh, some of the photos and perhaps an expanded uh, collection of his field recordings. So that's another project that's grown out of um, uh, of having been in India. Would you ever uh, have you have you tried to play Indian music at all? I mean, I know you're also a musician. No, uh, uh, as you know, um, it takes years, uh, and for a very good reason. And I didn't want to be a dabbler. I'm not even. Uh, I, I still am confused by just the guitar, which I played for, you know, seven million years. Um, the idea of playing an Indian instrument, I'm sure I picked them up and dabbled at them, but I realized the respect uh, a lot of people have for their instruments in India. And like I said, it's also, they're so designed to do what they're supposed to do that um, maybe another lifetime I can uh, begin to approach learning an Indian instrument, but I, I, I don't need to now. It's not, it's not my thing. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's funny, too. I, I uh, one of the, the keys that opened uh, a big door in, in my appreciation for for Indian music was um, re uh, like kind of was appreciating the role of the voice and mm -hmm. how in some ways the voice is the, the ultimate Indian instrument and that a lot of other instruments can be seen as sort of playing with the voice, you know, the way that in the West, the violin, you know, plays with the human voice. Um, and, and then through that, starting to really appreciate the singers, because uh, something about, I don't know how to say it, it's like, you, you can appreciate the, the technical side of what they're doing more because it's after all, it's just a voice. It's just like a voice like you have, like it's your own instrument. You have one. Uh, and, but, but beginning to develop an appreciation for the microtonal control and some of the, mm. the effects and some of the, um, the sort of ornamentation and the whole variety of ornamentation. Uh, it, it really, it, you know, it, it, that opened up a whole, a whole side of it. And, you know, again, I think I like probably half your recordings, um, on the in the Indian talking machine are are, are vocal recordings uh, too, and there's just something again special about the way in which the Indian tradition uh, uses the voice uh, that I I think also kind of uh, invites you in. And it's funny, I, I I was at a hippie electronic music festival, but it was like super hippie, so they had like a stage that was 
all uh, you know world music things, but they also had classes. So they had like a guy who was a you know who was a Hindustani vocal a white guy, but you know he had studied for with Pranath back in the day in the seventies and had kept it up. And then there was a guy who was a Kowali dude, and and they were doing lessons, and it was fascinating to sit in on them just to just to get a little taste, not so much of like being a dabbler in the, in the musical performance, which I wouldn't even, I'm not even close to that, but just to have a sense of how the instruction happens. Because of course, all of these musicians, they're learning in a, in a very, very well-defined way with very kind of um, unique forms of transmission and, uh, and, and training and a whole ethos of relating to the teacher. And I mean, it's, that's part of the richness of the system is the whole pedagogical environment that creates new, new performers, new students. Um, and even just getting a tiny taste of that, uh, you know, opened my, my eyes to part of the, the reason for the depths of the tradition. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The vocal styles are watching people learn. I, I interviewed some, um, vocal teachers and, yeah, it's just the amount of sing of scales you have to learn. Also, the stories of uh, how the class, because Indian music is all built on these schools of uh, of specific teachers, specific lineages of teachers, and um, and you're absolutely right that the vocals are the most important thing. And even uh, when you're learning tabla, say, or other instruments, you're very often singing the rhythms and the melodies that you're learning so that you're internalizing them in several different ways. Um, but the, the, you know, there's so many great stories of early, um, of, uh, of the teachers and how they would treat their students. Aludin Khan, one of the great uh, maestros uh, who taught Ravi Shankar uh, and, uh, and others, you know, he would be, he would be brutal to his students. Uh, but apparently deep down, he was a very, very sweet, wonderful, wonderful person, but he was brutal to his students to get them to learn in the way that he thought was important to them. Uh, and some of them he wouldn't even talk to, you know, for the first year that they were there or something, he wouldn't show them anything and they would just have to persevere to, uh, because they knew it was going to be worth it. So it's a, it's a very deep, amazing tradition. Yeah, and it, it it's funny coming to it from from more of the the outside experimental rock zone or whatever. Oh, because, yes, exactly. Because it's the almost the opposite is in the sense that even though experimental music, avant garde music, free jazz, noise music, you know, all of that stuff, it has its its traditions or its you know lineages in a sense. But in a lot of other ways, it's kind of it's all it's inspired by the idea that that you know, you can make the amazing things can happen like outside of training or, or beyond training or something like that. Beyond training specifically, uh, having spent enough time now listening to Indian music and seeing a lot of performances when I was there and so on, uh, I've certainly been able to occasionally, only occasionally, get beyond the technique because the technique of these vocal vocalists is absolutely staggering. And it's almost like I have no... I'm not, I shouldn't even be allowed to criticize them because they've spent 40 years of their life training their voice. Um, but still, I can actually a little bit appreciate when artists are taking that 40 years of training and doing something a little unique with it, pushing their voice, going beyond the training. 
And then some you get the sense that they're just they're just technical wizards and they're just kind of going through the motions and they don't actually have something emotional, something spiritual to say with their voice. It's 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 something that's impossible to describe and again maybe it's just what I hear, but there's some singers that I've found can completely affect me with just a few notes and some to me just sound like they're amazing but they're going through some sort of motions. Yeah, isn't it isn't that the, the term I think it's called spara? There's a term yeah. for like that extra musical spirit that or rasa too, yeah. Right. You know, and that and that's part of it too is we get into these uh you, you gotta get into a whole different headspace in order to uh to appreciate that. Um and you know, clearly I'm 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 psyched that you got psyched by it because you made this, <laughs> this great book and how you've got these cool projects going and more projects uh you know coming down the pike. I thought we would uh close the show by listening to another track. I just kind of grabbed it at, at random. This is a, a sitar instrumental from Professor Waliullah Khan. Mm. Um, do you have anything to say about the about, about that track? Um, well, it's one of the people I couldn't find too much information about. Um, I don't think he re recorded too much. Uh, and uh, again, he's another person from Calcutta, I think, um, if I'm remembering correctly. And he, uh, the the term professor in the book. Um, and, on, and indeed, on all the other 78 compilation projects I've worked on over the years, um, I love to use the original, what the label printed, um, which is often misspelled or not, or they had the wrong instrument. I don't know why I like to do that, but I like, uh, you know, and then I'll explain in the notes often. Um, but he wasn't really a professor. He was a new stud. He was a, you know, but... I love how in this label they just translated him to be a professor. Um, I think that was also one that was recorded on a uh, label called Hindustan Records, um, which started actually in Calcutta and was one of the first record labels that was exclusively owned and operated um, by Indian nationals. Uh, and it's got an extremely interesting history to it. Um, it actually still exists today in one form or another. Um, and, uh, I went to their original recording studios and, um, just, which is now just a storeroom in the basement of a building in Calcutta. But, uh, it was kind of great to be there among that, among that history. A lot of they, and like with a lot of, uh, record labels the world over, but in India, it seemed to be a particular problem record labels such as Hindustan Records, even though they still exist, their archives were just destroyed. They hadn't kept good archives. They'd crumbled away. They didn't even know what they had. So when I would ask about artists like this, no one really knew. They might be able to unearth a ledger that would have written in Bengali the date of his recording, but that's about it. No one knew about him. No one knew what the record number was, for example, things like that. So... Collectors Again. are a, a very valuable resource for for holding on to this stuff, um, and you know, and India has got all kinds of issues with climate and with storage room and stuff. So, who knows? Yeah, but it's, it's amazing. It's, it's 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 part. I think that's part of the mysterious vibe that we were talking about is that these things oh, are yeah. just on, on the on the edge of 
the void you know they're with one little trick of history differently that they would never appear or there would never be any information about them so well anyway robert thanks so much for for talking with us on expanding mind and i'll say you know i'll send people to your uh website through the link on the on the web on the page and and people can dig around and there's a lot of other uh images and recordings on on that as well so uh so thanks again yeah, my, thank you very much. And there's a lot of amazing Indian music when you get deep on uh, YouTube. I mean, it's the YouTube quality, but still, there's a lot of stuff there. So, absolutely. Thanks again, Eric. All righty. Well, we're going to go out here with uh, sitar instrumental from the professor. Until next <laughs> week, keep your minds open. Mm -hmm.